Our text for today comes from Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had had charge of fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. There uh, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, we're keeping it positive this morning, guys. Uh, Good morning, everyone. There is a little hypothetical question that from time to time uh, I heard posed growing up. Uh, Maybe you've heard it before. The question goes like this. Is, can God create a rock so big that he couldn't himself pick it up? Have you ever heard this question before? Logically speaking, the question is nonsense. Uh... The, both sides of the question kind of cancel each other out and make an actual answer to it impossible. But the sentiment behind this question is something good, actually. When, when that question is asked, what the person is often asking is a question about God's power. Or in theological language, we are asking about God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign? Is he powerful? How... Uh, the question kind of underneath it all is, how, how sovereign is God? How much can God do, right? How much can God do? And I think deep down inside of all of us, we want to believe that God can do everything, right? Just like when we were little, we wanted to believe that our dads could beat up all the other dads. This is how we think about God very often, because if God can do everything, if he is totally and transcendently sovereign, then we don't really need to be afraid of anything, do we? Because our Father can take care of it, if he's sovereign, if he's powerful. But there is a problem that arises when we begin to talk about God's sovereignty, and it is a problem that I think the book of Revelation addresses uh, head-on this morning. If you've been with us, we've been in a series on the book of Revelation. We've been walking through the book all summer long, uh, and we've been looking at the ways in which the book of Revelation reveals the character of God to us, and I think today is no different. Because the question that I think is being asked today in our teaching text is, is God still sovereign? Is he still all-powerful if bad things happen to me? This is the question that I think is going on in this teaching text today. Specifically, in Revelation, the question is, is God still sovereign? If, is he still king of the cosmos? If his people can suffer persecution and even suffer death at the hands of the rulers and the authorities of this world? So, the question kind of goes like this. Is my dad the strongest dad on the block if I sometimes still get beat up? This is the question, right? 
And, th and this is the question that is actually asked, not just in this passage, but throughout the Bible. If, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with this. The prophet Isaiah famously asks of God at one point, is not your arm too short to save? And all throughout the Psalms, you hear the psalmist saying things like this, where are you, O God? Why do you not vindicate me? Why does it look like my enemies are winning? Why do they triumph over me? There's this long tradition in the scriptures of questioning. And the Bible, this long tradition in the Bible shows us that we are allowed, even invited when we suffer, when we encounter difficult situations, to question God, those, to ask those questions. Those things are appropriate and good, and God teaches us and invites us to do them. To ask when we encounter a difficult situation, where is God in all of this? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my family? These are good questions, and I believe God invites us into a kind of dialogue with him in the midst of them. But uh, I do want to say this morning that while he invites us into a dialogue, and while we're supposed to ask these questions, I do not believe that the answers to these questions are necessarily speaking easy. There aren't you know this, right? You've experienced difficulty, struggle, pain, sin, tragedy probably even in your life. And you know that the answers to the questions of your heart are not easy. They're not, uh, they're not just simple, plat answers. They're, they can't be answered via platitude or, uh, or catchy little phrase, can they? There's something deeply associated with these questions that we need to struggle with, that we need to deal with. Now, very often when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter struggle, when we uh, encounter tragedy, you will get people giving you answers to these questions. You, the people will often say, uh, well, in, a, in, a, in a, attempting to help, really, they will try to answer these questions for you. And I really see two answers to this question of God's sovereignty when we encounter difficult situations. And and the, there's two answers to this that I think are kind of unbiblical. And the first unbiblical answer that people often give when we encounter difficulty is, and bear with me here, the unbiblical answer, the wrong answer, is God is in control. Now, I hope I'm not committing heresy uh, this morning. I, I don't think I am. But just to simply say God is in control is, I believe, an unbiblical answer, and it is one that does damage to the character and nature of God in our minds. You know, Ashley and I were at Dairy Queen the other day after church. It was Sunday. It was after church. We sometimes go pick up food uh, a few weeks ago, and we were waiting in line to order. Uh, I'm in the line at Dairy Queen, I made the greatest mistake of my life. Uh, I ordered a flamethrower burger. Never do that. Uh, and as we were sitting in line at, uh, at, at Dairy Queen, we heard a screech, and, and an SUV ran a stop sign on Hudson Road and got T-boned by a semi, probably going about 55 miles an hour. And the question that rose up in my heart is, was God in control when that happened? Did God, did God make that happen, Right? Because to say that God is in control when a semi plows into an SUV is, is to say that God foreordained that event, that he made it happen in some way. And 
And the same can be said of when someone you know goes through cancer, right? To say that God is in control of that is a way of saying, did God give me cancer? Did God do that thing to me specifically? Saying God is in control of those situations is a simple answer, but I actually don't think it's a comforting one or a biblical one because the answer calls, like I said, calls into question God's character. God can't be good if he controls those events, if he makes them happen, if he literally causes them. And the second unbiblical answer is also no good. So we're kind of in a pickle this morning. Here's the second unbiblical answer to this question. If God is not in control, then God must not be all-powerful, right? Or even worse, God is not good. And if you read the Bible, you cannot deny either God's power or his goodness— so, how, so neither of these answers work for us this morning. So how do we explain the bad stuff that happens? How do we explain it? How do we make sense of it? Here's what I think. I think the biblical answer to that question is far more sophisticated and beautiful than those two kind of simple platitudes that we're given at times when bad things happen. From the biblical perspective, I think we learn that God is not in control. God is sovereign. And those two things are different. They're different. And I think actually we confuse, uh, people confuse this idea of sovereignty and power with, with control. All right? Because when we, we humans, when we have power, right, it often looks like control. We try to control people in situations when we have power, right? We try to bend them to our will. But God's power, his sovereignty, is far more beautiful than simple control or coercion, right? It's not about the meticulous control of every little thing. God's sovereignty finds its fullest expression in his love and in his self-sacrifice, in his love and in his self-sacrifice is where we find the fullest expression of the way in which God's power works itself out in our lives through his sovereignty. Now, I have given you the answer to the question at the beginning of the test, all right, of, of our sermon for today. And what, I'm go one, what I want to do for the rest of this morning is kind of uh, look through Revelation 14 and see the ways that this passage of Scripture uh, can teach us about this idea. So I'm hoping, I've told you now, I'm hoping to show you a little bit more. Now, if you were with us when we were reading this Scripture, right, if you were listening as the text, as the teaching text for today was read, you might be asking yourself, what drugs did Nick do before church that would make him think that this passage has anything to do with what he was just talking about. Uh, and I can assure you, I have done zero drugs, all right, this morning. I usually don't drink coffee, but I needed, uh, I, I, I've done zero drugs across the whole of my life, not just this morning, okay? I realized that I needed to qualify that. Sure, yeah, so, did somebody say sure? All right. Uh, I, did, I usually don't even drink coffee on Sunday mornings, but I needed a little pick-me-up. Uh, but here's the thing. We've been looking at the book of Revelation, right? Revelation is a difficult book. And, and this part of Revelation 14 is, is particularly uh, head-scratching for people. 
very often. It has been for quite some time. Uh, so if you're with me this morning and you have the scriptures, I think it would be helpful for you to open them to Revelation chapter 14, beginning in chapter, or chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, and we can kind of walk through this text together, and I hope to show you a few things in it. Now, this little section is the last bit of the book before uh, we get into a part of the book of Revelation that is all about these bowls of judgment, these bowls of judgment. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, you might be familiar with this. But uh, this is the, uh, the bowls of judgment are the few chapters in the book of Revelation where this theme of judgment predominates, all right? So we're about to get into that section, and we'll travel into those parts of the book uh, in the next week or so. But before we get into the bowls of judgment, there is this kind of interlude in the story of the book of Revelation. And that interlude, and in that interlude, John gives us a picture of a kind of harvest. A harvest. Now, we're from Iowa. We know what harvest looks like. We know what time harvest usually occurs. But in this passage, uh, we get a powerful imagery in language of, uh, of some, a harvest of wheat and of grapes of wheat and of grapes. Now, from this passage and a couple of other passages is where we get the famous imagery of the grapes of wrath. If you've ever read the John Steinbeck novel, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, we also get the, the wording or the language from the battle hymn of the Republic, right? They are trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. Uh, that's the only singing you're going to get this morning as well. Now, uh, traditionally, there have been there, have, there has been a debate over this passage about what type of harvest is taking place in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. So does this passage depict the final ingathering of God's people? So is it a good harvest? Or does it, uh, is it talking about the final gathering or harvest of the rebellious towards judgment? So this is what historically scholars and pastors and people like me who talk about the Bible publicly have gone back and forth on uh, throughout the history of the church. Is this a good harvest or is this a bad harvest? What is actually going on here? And when you read this section, both of those options seem viable. They, they seem viable. In the passage, we get a, a glimpse or an image of what John calls one like the Son of Man. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man based on a passage in the book of Daniel where Daniel refers to the Son of Man. And John uses this moniker, the Son of Man, as a way of talking about Jesus in the book of Revelation. So when John uses that, he re he's referring to Christ. So you have one like the Son of Man. You have Jesus who is gathering a harvest. But the images also seem very, very violent, don't they? And the image of Jesus gathering a harvest and the violence that we see kind of uh, juxtaposed or put next to one another in this passage are unsettling. They, we don't know what to do with them when we, re when we first read them. It's, it's hard to associate the level of violence that we read about in chapter 14 with a good harvest, a good in gathering of God's people, isn't it? Because John says that this pressing of these grapes that produces this kind of wine, but also is a kind of blood, and just to spare you, that this blood raises to the, all the way to the halter of a horse for what amounts to that distance, that 1600 stradia, uh, scholars tell us would be like two miles, right? 
It's a, that's a, it's a very evocative image of what's going on here. And so it's hard for us to read that and think this is anything even remotely good, isn't it? Like what, John, are you talking about here? These, is it good or is it bad? What, what, what are we experiencing? But here's what I think. I think something is happening here that if you remember what we've been talking about earlier in this series on the book of Revelation begins to make sense. Now, just to uh, rewind a little bit to last week. Last week we talked about how Babylon made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries, right? This is what we talked about last week as Babylon, this great nation, the symbol, symbolic of the great nations of the world that make, uh, make the people of God drink the maddening wines of her adulteries. Babylon came to symbolize a culture of idolatry, a culture that that enticed people away from the worship of the one true God and made them dependent or made them love all of these other things other than God. And the, and the writer of the book of Revelation says that this is like to, to be a part of Babylon and to be enticed by what Babylon has is like drinking the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon was this great city of idolatries that misleads the people away from the worship of God and the Lamb. Now, this theme of wine or drinking wine is prevalent in Revelation, and we see it pictured again in chapters 16 and 17. We'll actually come and and hit those ideas again later in the book. And in those chapters, the wine that that is drunk is not the maddening wine of Babylon. It's a different wine. It's sometimes called the cup of the Lord. It's sometimes called the cup of the wrath of God, the wine of the wrath of God. It's referred to as different ways. Uh, but it's a different wine. It's, it's uh, again, uh, a wine that stands over and against this maddening wine of Babylon's, uh, that, that Babylon offers that's full of idolatries or adulteries. So the wine of God's, what is called the wine of God's wrath, is different than the maddening wine of Babylon. It comes from a different source, even. And in this passage, I think we discover the source of this wine. Are you with me? In this passage, we see the source, that the source of the wine is God's people. It's God's people. Soylent green is people. Uh, Sorry. So, So here is what I need you to see in order to understand what is kind of confusing in this passage. The wrath of God that is mentioned in this passage is not directed towards the grapes. Notice this when you read this passage. But it is directed at those who will drink this wine as, a by, as the byproduct of the crushing of these grapes. So when we keep this image together with the themes that we've been looking at through the book of Revelation that has been weaved together throughout Revelation, that the followers of the Lamb overcome by, their, by the word of their testimony and by their willingness to be martyred, it suggests to us that the blood that flows from the wine press of God's fury is not the blood of God's enemies. It's not the blood of God's enemies, but the blood of his servants who his enemies have killed, have murdered. Which is not a particularly sunny idea, is it, this morning? It's not, this, this is not... This is not a feel-good section of Scripture. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. John is again telling God's people that there is a purpose for their suffering. 
there's a purpose for their suffering. John is telling Jesus' followers that God's sovereignty extends all the way even to the worst thing that they can suffer in life. It extends all the way to that place. And that though it seems like God is absent, he is actually working in a counterintuitive way in the midst of what was certainly for those followers of Jesus, the worst possible situation that they could conceive of. He is working in the midst of that situation to accomplish his purposes. Somehow, some way, God works salvation and judgment through the sacrifice of these, uh, these followers of the Lamb. And in this process, somehow, some way, judgment and mercy, or judgment and salvation, are intimately connected. They're intimately connected. And here is why I'm really convinced that this image here is talking about that and not talking about something else. It's because we see this same commingling of justice or judgment and mercy or salvation in the cross of Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquity, right? He was bruised for us. Now, have you ever wondered why the cross of uh, the, the cross of Christ, the in the cross of Christ, God uses the worst imaginable sin to accomplish the best possible outcome. Why is that? Killing the Son of God is literally the worst thing any of us could possibly do, right? There's no worse sin than killing Jesus. There's no greater abomination. There's no greater tragedy. And yet, this abomination that is the murder of the Son of God is the vehicle that God uses in his plan and purposes to redeem and restore the world. It is on the cross that we see the meeting of both the wrath and mercy of God in some mysterious way. You know, the cross of Christ is not a uh, math equation. You can't really figure it out and make complete sense of it. It is a mystery, and this is why Christians for thousands of years have referred to the cross as the mystery of Christ. But we know that through this powerful act of self-sacrificial love on the part of Jesus, the traject uh, and the tragedy of sin, that on the cross there is a kind of victory that is won. There is a victory that is won on the cross in spite of the degradation of the cross, in spite of the tragedy of the cross. Actually, kind of through it all, there is a victory that is won. And in the same way, I think John is connecting this harvest that we read about in Revelation 14 to the cross of Christ. And here's why I think this is what he's doing. Notice chapter, notice verse 20 of chapter 14, and where he says the wine, this, this pressing of this wine takes place. It takes place outside the city, which is exactly the same place where Christ was crucified, outside of the city. If you remember, Jesus took the cross and took it outside the city to the to Golgotha, where he was crucified. God, through John, in this passage, here's what I believe, is telling the church that 
that God is going to work through and transform even the worst thing they can experience. And, uh, and because of this, something powerful is going to happen. Something that will accomplish God's purposes on the earth through their suffering, through their crushing, their willingness to be crushed. God is going to accomplish something beautiful, some kingdom end, some kingdom purpose is going to be accomplished. If you remember, it is by, in Revelation, it is by the word uh, of the witnesses and by the blood of the lamb that those who are persecuted overcome, right, in the book of Revelation. And so, uh, to sum up what I think this chapter, this, this half of this chapter is about, I think N.T. Wright does it a little bit better. Uh, our, our old friend N.T. Wright sums it up this way. He says, the whole passage is designed to convey a powerful message which we need today as much as ever. God's time will come. God will bring his people safely home. God will take even the wickedness and rebellion of the world and make it turn to his praise and to the salvation of his people. And in the meantime, his people are to be encouraged in their suffering. Martyrdom itself will be a part of God's purpose to bring his wise healing order, which includes the relentless judgment of relentless sinners to bear upon the world. So in this passage, John is telling God's people this. Through God's sovereign power and love, he works within our brokenness to bring about his good plan and purpose. And this is exactly what Paul says in the famous passage in Romans 8, 28, where he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, whom have been called according to his purpose. God does not cause wickedness and rebellion. God's, God does not cause suffering and pain. But God is always, always working within it to bring about his goodwill and purpose. God does not cause the suffering of his people, but in a counterintuitive move, he will use it to accomplish his purposes. And for me, this is a greater power than simple control or coercion, isn't it? Like we talked about earlier, God is not in control. God does not cause pain and difficulty, but he is sovereign over it. And he is committed to working within it to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And here, so here's how I think this works, this idea works out practically in our lives. Joss, and if you guys could come up. My wife and I were driving to her mother's funeral this week, or not her mother, but her grandmother's funeral this week. And anytime I either perform or attend a funeral service, I usually get to thinking, and when I get to thinking, I usually get to talking about the resurrection, about the resurrection. You know, even though death is always sad, and Christians are supposed to uh, have hope because we believe that Christ defeated death uh, when he returns, uh, we are, we are called to believe that there is a kind of resurrection and that we will be resurrected just like him. Well, sometimes when Christians talk about heaven, what we are really talking about is the resurrection. But on our way to Nebraska for her grandmother's service, Ashley and I started talking about what our, what our memories of bad uh, stuff will be like in the resurrection. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that every tear will be wiped away from every eye. So does that mean that we will no longer remember the bad stuff? 
or that the bad stuff will be transformed in our memories and we'll view it differently? Will we see and remember all of the unpleasant things that have happened? Or, uh, and as we see them, will we see those things in the light of eternity, in the light of God's plan for creation? And will the bad stuff be in some miraculous way transformed? That be transformed. And nothing, nothing at all, no pain, no sin, no suffering, no grace or good will be wasted in the resurrection. But everything will in some mysterious and marvelous way be redeemed. So when something horrible happens to you, and it will, if it hasn't already, it will, right? Something bad. When we experience the death of a loved one, when we experience the pain of separation and loss, when all of our bodies naturally break down, I say to you today, and hold on to this, if it's not okay, then it's not finished. If it's not okay, then it's not finished. Because God is not in control. God is sovereign. And he will not stop until every evil, every pain you have experienced, every sin you have ever committed is in some way transformed in the light of Christ's death and resurrection. Really what we are talking about is the question of God's sovereignty and power. Is God really so big and so good that he can transform or remake the sin, suffering, and pain that we experience in life? And I would say this is exactly the type of God that we serve. We serve a God so big and so beautiful that he is able to take even the worst thing that has ever happened to you the worst thing that has ever happened in the world. And he is able to transform it in such a way that when we look back on it, we will look back on it through the lens of that resurrection and it will be restored or renewed, transformed in some miraculous way. In the same way that the cross was able to transform the worst thing that has ever happened on the face of the earth into a kind of beautiful thing, the resurrection can do for each and every one of us that same thing. And when we look back on all of it, the tragedy of our own sin, we will look back on it in the same way we would look back at a beautiful story. And we will rejoice. We will rejoice. You know, it's no surprise to me that at the, book, at the end of the book of Revelation, we get a picture of the whole of redeemed creation gathered around the throne of God, ascribing glory and power and majesty to his name. I like to believe that it's because they see the beauty of what he did in weaving all of our broken stories together into one beautiful whole of redeeming and restoring everything that was broken when every low place was brought up and every high place was brought down and we walk together on flat ground and we see the goodness of our God and the whole of creation responds with praise and glory to him. And in the same way for you and for me this morning. Though it may feel right now like we're in the wine press, right? Life feels that way sometimes. Just know that God will work in and through what you have experienced to accomplish his good purpose. 
There is no tragedy that he won't redeem. And for some of us this morning, we need to hear this loud and clear. Because something has happened to you. Something horrible, maybe, even, has happened to you. And that thing has been with you, and you've carried that thing, and it has caused you to ask questions like, where's God? Where is he? Why didn't he stop that thing from happening to me? Why did he allow it to take place? Is he good? Is he there at all? And what I believe God wants you to know is that he is working. He is working. This does not diminish the pain of that event. Grief is a godly and good emotion. We learn from the book of Revelation that God is angry at sin and that he is grieved by difficulty. We don't, we don't just walk through life pretending that these things don't bother us. God is grieved over the things that grieve us as well. But what we need to hear this morning is that we serve a good God, a sovereign God who is always working. And there is coming a day when you will look back at the events of your life through the lens of the kingdom of God, and it will not make all of the things that happened right, but it will make everything somehow miraculously redeemed. And that's what I want out of life. That's the type of God I want to serve. Not who just like waves a magic wand and makes me forget about the bad stuff, right? But in some way that I can't even explain, redeems, redeems. Now, one last thing before we go this morning. I grew up in uh, the Pentecostal charismatic uh, stream of evangelical Christian church. And... Uh, and we used to say, we used to think that when God was uh, working, he was doing the things that we asked him to do. So here's an example. So uh, two people would pray that God would heal them. And if God healed one of them, God was clearly working in that situation. And if the other person who prayed didn't get healed, God was clearly not working in that situation, right? And what this teaching tells us today is that God is always working. He's always working in both situations, in every situation, to bring about his good plan and his purpose. It may not always line up with our wants, wills, and desires, but we can trust wholeheartedly that he is always working in the midst of situations that don't feel right to us to bring about his kingdom plan and his purpose. He is always working to redeem. He is always working to restore. It's just that we might not always see it. You know, once or twice in your life, your will might line up with God's, right? Maybe once or twice. And uh, when that happens, good for you, right? And good for me. But just know that just because it doesn't, it doesn't meet your criteria in the moment, that just because things feel a little dark, just because it, you feel like you might be in the wine press for a time, it does not mean that God is not working in the midst of that broken situation to bring about his plan. And it does not mean that God is not good. Because God is abundantly good. And he is not in control of the bad thing that happened to you. He did not make it happen. But he will renew it. He will restore it. And he will make it right. I have faith in that. So would you stand with me this morning? I had the sense this week that 
we were, uh, a lot of us are probably struggling with this question of the goodness of God. What does the control of God look like in our lives? What does the sovereignty of God look like? Maybe you've been carrying something with uh, over the last number of years, weeks, decades, that you just can't quite shake. Wondering, where was God in the midst of that? And this morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. Uh, and then I want us to sing for, for a minute together. Uh, so with every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, if you're in this place and you're saying, Nick, 